good morning again. Um, if you're new to Forefront, which I guess, how many, who's been here for like three months? Six months? A year? Two years? Less than three months. Yeah, there we go. That's what I was looking for. Um, one of the things that we did several years ago um, as a church staff was go through our values. When I kind of got here, we had about seven values and they each had like three sentences and it was wasn't not easy to kind of for us to actually articulate that. And as a staff, several years ago, we went through this, this, uh, this process where we actually kind of wrestled through what do we actually think we stand for as a church? We came up with four values and they were humility, generosity, diversity, and community. Uh, for me, my story uh, as, as a white man and as an Australian was when we got on staff here, we had a leadership resident called Jordan Rice, uh, who's an African-American uh, man, and he shared on one uh, Wednesday morning our staff meeting the fact that that Martin Luther King Jr. quote, which is, Sunday morning is the most divided time in the nation. Uh, and that, that totally wrecked me, and I think that kind of really started our church on this journey of like, how do we not be, be a white church? How do we not kind of just plan a hipster church in Brooklyn that looks like me, or looks like Jonathan? Um, and so that's kind of where we've been wrestling with that for several years. And if you've, if you've been around, obviously you've seen on Sunday morning worship, uh, what I want it to look like is to have people who don't look like me, they don't sound like me, they have their own unique uh, styles, they have their own kind of unique way of leading. But I think more than just worship style, we're going to want to also platform and talk ideas and talk with people. So that's kind of what we're doing this morning. And that's a little bit of background, uh, and we can share more with that. Uh, but I'm very, very excited to be here. We all had, well, Hannah is a late ring-in because Joanne... Uh, Hal, if you don't know Joanne, part of our community here, she had a family emergency and had to pull out, but Hannah uh, is with us, which I'm excited, but the rest of us had dinner together a few weeks ago and had a, a lovely time just chatting, and I think uh, we might actually share the audio of that online at some point as well. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to let these guys introduce themselves. I'm with Dorcas because the microphone's right in front of you, so introduce yourself, tell us uh, kind of your, your cultural background and kind of faith background with you as you get started. Hi, I'm Dorcas. Uh, some people know me as D. Uh, we can talk a little bit about my name later. Uh, I am Chinese American and grew up in a very Chinese and very Christian home. Um, I come from a family full of pastors, uh, and I'm the black sheep of that family for not being in ministry full time. Hi, I'm Hannah. Uh, I'm from England. I lived uh, my whole life, really, until the last three years in England. So my cultural background and faith experience and everything all um, took place in the UK. Hi, I'm Juby. Um, I was born in India, and I came here to this country when I was very little. And I'm from South India, a state called Kerala. Um, and we are, we speak a language called Malayalam, and so I'm a Malayali. And I grew up, my faith tradition is I grew up in the Marthama church. It's a Syrian church, um, very orthodox, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. As well. um, so kind of going in depth, we talked a little bit about uh, the specifics of kind of the domination you kind of grew up in and kind of what was tied up with that. Uh, so we'll start with you because you have the, the microphone. Tell us how that church got to India. Uh, and tell us who started it and how, how then that experience of you coming to America, you know, kind of what, what you brought with you. Um, well, our church has a rich history. They say that uh, St. Thomas, Mar, Thoma, 
is um, started seven churches on the coast of Malabar after all the disciples were charged with going to the ends of the world, right? So our uh, history is that he founded, he converted all of the Indians in the, on that Malabar coast. And um, the church started, I think, like in the late 1800s, maybe 1898 or something like that. So um, it's there's 72 parishes all around the whole world. Um, we have a, a hierarchy of like bishops, and it's it's Orthodox. It's very similar to the Catholic tradition, with um, some uh, more more I guess um, Episcopal tradition. So um, yeah, and our church was uh, part of being Indian for me, and. Um, part of being Indian was our church community. We did everything through that. And what did it look like on a, on a Sunday when you gathered? What did it look like? So it was very traditional. We wore, um, my mom always wore sari to church, still does. Um, and we have a liturgical service. Uh, probably in like the 80s, and, and we have, uh, we started with one church. I grew up in Philadelphia. And that, and then that broke up into two churches. And now it's three churches in Philly because of the number of people um, and, you know, politics. So, uh, you know, no one ever can stay in one church. Politics and church, <laughs> what are you talking about? So, yeah, we, um, we, we just come in and we'd have a liturgical service, uh, a Malayalam service that the kids would have to sit through and we'd be like this in the back. And then we'd had Sunday school occasionally um, until we started getting, you know, established and we had Sunday school right off the bat. And then we had an English, now we have an English service that sings um, evangelical songs, like Chris Tomlin and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little cray cray. Cool. Yeah, I mean, we started that. Like, we had some um, youth, when I was a, a child, go to um, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at their colleges and brought all this this evangelical ideology to our, to the church. How many Malayalis are there? In, are they mostly in Philly? Or? Oh no, they're all over the world. I looked up the, the statistics. There's a million members. I mean, we have a that lot church. of Indians in the world. Yeah, in that church, a million members in Marthama Church. So it's all over. Like We have one in um, Auckland. A Marthama Church in Auckland. Crazy. And so when, uh, when your parents, you, you should maybe tell the story, kind of when your parents moved here, uh, was there a Mahatma church in existence yes. in Philly? Mm -hmm. And how long had that been here in the States? Uh, at that time, we had come in 1981. So uh, probably like 20 years, 15 to 20 years already established. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Hannah? What was your denominational background? Oh, you, you preached a couple of months ago on Anglicism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Um, so I, I didn't grow up in the Church of England, although um, I was a member of the Church of England and in the ordination process there before I moved to New York. Um, I grew up in a Baptist church um, in England, which was an evangelical Baptist church. Um, but I was having a conversation yesterday with somebody about how different evangelicalism is in the UK from what it is here. Uh, so it has some similarities, but in a lot of ways it's a, a different beast. Um, a lot less linked with politics and uh, generally sort of less fundamentalist but the, the church that I grew up in was pretty middle of the road evangelical and um, I certainly uh, kind of was brought up in that culture of uh, a lot of the things that you would expect in evangelicalism like um, uh, praying a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart and having a personal relationship with God as your Lord and Savior all those kinds of uh, words and language um, and 
certainly had a lot of kind of black and white, right and wrong, right answers to questions, apologetics, um, that kind of thing. Uh, that was my, my church upbringing. My family culture was slightly different from that. Uh, it was Christian and relatively evangelical, but a lot more nuanced and had a lot more kind of levels of complexity to faith. So both my parents are PhDs and intellectualism is kind of their thing. And so uh, we were always encouraged as children to to discuss and debate everything, uh, which my family does very loudly to this day every time we're together. Um, and uh, I was always encouraged to, ch to question everything I was taught, whether it was in school or in church or in Sunday school or wherever, and to um, make up my own mind. And so, uh, and to, uh, it's particularly to test things, like to test stuff against the Bible, to test stuff against science, to test stuff against rationality. Um, and that is something that I'm very grateful for in my culture and in my upbringing, and I think has given me um, the opportunity to stand up for myself and to stand up for other people and to push back against ideas and things that I think are wrong and also I guess has, has helped me as my faith evolved kind of away from evangelicalism over the years recently. When did you find the Anglicans? Oh, when did I find the Anglicans? Um, well they were always there. <laughs> the, church, <laughs> yeah. the Church of England is the state church of England. It's very different from the US where you have the separation between church and state. Um, uh, personally for me, it was um, when I married Johnny and we moved to a new town and we were looking for a church. Um, the one that we liked the most and that was doing a lot of kind of community outreach stuff and social justice work happened to be Church of England. So then when I um, first kind of got asked to preach and first started thinking about ministry, it was obvious that that would be the church route I would go down because we were part of that church at the time. It was only when I went to seminary and learned about Anglican theology, uh, which I preached about here before, and you can listen to that on the podcast if you want to, uh, but that was when I kind of was like, yes, this is my theology, I love this, the kind of the both and, like, holding different views in tension and uh, kind of not not having to always uh, choose one option when two things disagree, but being able to hold them both together. Um, and that, that's what I love about the Anglican Church. Yeah. Awesome. Dorcas, your particular church background? Um, I have kind of a varied church history. So before I was here, I was at a Presbyterian church. Before it was that, I was at a vineyard church. And before that, it was a church that I, um, the tradition that I grew up in and, um, Growing up, we went to a church that was part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And it's a, it's, an, it's a pretty young denomination, I would say. A.B. Simpson started it in like the beginning of the 20th century. It wasn't intended to be a denomination at first, but it um, kind of started in this way to train and provide support for missionaries. Um, so as you can guess, that meant that world missions was a huge, huge part of the way that we understood our faith. Um, my dad himself um, became a Christian while at a like Christian school in Hong Kong. Um, there was a missionary who came here, who came there from from the states, and she became such a mentor to him. And so. When he moved here to New York, 
he, you know, sought out another church and, um, since then we've always just been part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. I have found that it's quite, the Chinese version of the Christian Missionary Alliance is a little different from the rest of the denomination. Uh, there's a bit of, I think in the, in the past there had been some, some departure from the original like roots of this denomination. A.B. Simpson himself had some um, Pentecostal and, and Assemblies of God roots and like definitely our version of the Christian Mission Alliance was not at all charismatic and very much like tried to like hide some of that from us as youth I would say. Um, my parents met at church uh, in youth group um, here in New York, and I think that, like, it was such a part of who they were as a couple, and then part of who we were as a family. So you shared with us, uh, at, at that dinner that your grandparents are not Christian, though. Correct. Um, and so talk to us about kind of how your Chinese culture and faith kind of interacted <laughs> and kind of made the tensions between those two. Um, so I... I mentioned that my dad became a Christian when he was a teenager in Hong Kong. My mom became a Christian also as a teenager here in New York. You know, a friend of hers brought her to a small group, or to a youth group, and, you know, won one for Jesus. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but that means that both of my parents were the first Christians in their respective families. And so, um, there's this very much a, a chosen family part of the way that they understood their faith, right? So, like, they departed a little bit from their backgrounds and, like, came together in this, like, church environment. Um, I think also because they were the first Christians in their family, they had to choose what, which parts of being Chinese we could keep or that they could, like, teach to us as kids. So we didn't really... We didn't really grow up learning any, like, Chinese, like, mythology or, like, um, some of the superstitions and uh, spiritual practices that were common in um, Chinese families. Um, and I think for them, they had to make those kinds of, like, weird first-time decisions to decide, like, is this okay according to like my Christian faith and what can we or can we not pass on to our kids. Um, Is there anything specific that you kind of want to share that you think that like a specific practice? Sure. Okay. So, so one of the things is that um, growing up uh, we always celebrated so we ourselves as a family always celebrated Chinese New Year. And Chinese Nira itself has, you know, uh, there's a lot of trappings to it that are superstitious and a little bit. It's all about, like, good fortune and longevity and prosperity and all these things. And there's, like, you know, couplet sayings that you say to wish each other all those things. There are things you cannot, cannot do because you might, like, scare away the good fortune and things like that. So my parents kind of edged away from those kinds of practices and then our Chinese New Year was basically just like food and people which is probably the best way to celebrate a holiday um, so like you know my mom would 
let us, t- we would take the day off from school and we would stay home and like eat junk food and watch Chinese cartoons. Um, that was how we celebrated. And then we celebrated with our family in the same way, but again, like food and people. So like we didn't do any like the grave sweeping. We didn't do um, a lot of the, the other things that my parents like felt were not okay for us. Um, one thing that I have come to experience, um, my dad is now a pastor. This my dad's kind of second career, and he's, he's pastoring a church in Brooklyn, and he is also still in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and that church does not celebrate Chinese New Year at all. So it's a Chinese church, and they come, they, it, it like is located in this like very Chinese American neighborhood in Brooklyn, and for the past like three or four years, I get into an argument with them every single time because they don't celebrate Chinese New Year. And I think that is a terrible thing because I think that's like, it's telling them that like, you can't be Chinese and be a Christian. And I also think that it, like I think there are ways that you can filter out the things that like are of God and of, are not of God within your celebration. It also means that you separate people from their families um, and it kind of, you lose an opportunity to like invite people into your like community, right? So if you have a Chinese New Year like special day and then you just like invite your neighbor from down the street, like that is a great opportunity for people to like get to know your church and to know your community and they never do it because they just needed like a very cut and dry decision like, oh no, that's all about superstition. We don't do that, we're Christians. And so um, they just, Every year, they just kind of like let it go without thinking much more of it. And I argue with my dad about this, and he doesn't want to like, he's not the senior pastor, so he doesn't make any of those kinds of like rulings. Um, And so he doesn't want to like push for those kinds of changes. Um, But I tell him like, you know that everyone's gonna go home and celebrate Chinese New Year anyway. (laughs) Like, you can't not, so like, yeah. Um, and, and so to not do it as a church family just seems really unfortunate to me. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I think that is huge. I think a lot of, obviously, kind of what we're going to talk about this morning is this kind of where does culture and faith, where they intersect, and, and what do we have to give up in order to do that? And is that kind of the way we want to do this, you know, like move forward as, as a church? Like, do we just allow for these things to be, you know, who they are? Uh, I think one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is uh, when we first started, we were from this movement which is non-denominational. Uh, and I didn't really know what that meant, really, as being Australian. But I, I was always really intrigued by this word non in front of it, that we were not something. Um, and I, that wasn't very compelling to me because I realized actually being non-denominational meant you were actually something. You were evangelical. You did actually have a denomination. You just weren't the other ones. Uh, and so what became more compelling to me was this idea of being interdenominational that we could actually be a community where people could bring their backgrounds and their faith because you don't leave it all behind. You don't just check it at the door and somehow magically like become something else. We, we do bring our culture with us. So, um, so Hannah, talk to us about faith and culture, how they intersected for you. Um, like you kind of said that your family had you know, high conversations and, and it was quite different from the Baptist church to where you ended up. Yeah, so this was an interesting question for me to think about. I think when you're raised... Um, in a place where your culture is seen as the mainstream, you don't often think about your culture. So it was a good challenge for me to think about. Um, so 
it's a it's a funny one. Um, like I said, the UK has a state church, um, and the the Queen, the monarch, is the head of the Church of England, uh, and. I guess um, a lot of people think of Britain as a Christian nation. Officially, it's not a Christian nation. I don't really think any nation is a religion. Um, but uh, I guess typically, um, for people maybe from my grandparents' generation, they would have seen it synonymous to be British and to be Christian. And uh, even though my, my grandparents on my dad's side of the family were, were not Christian, were not churchgoers, and they did all the things that you were kind of supposed to do because you were British, like having him christened in a Church of England church when he was a baby, even though they didn't have a faith. And, uh, and I think they would have been on the generation that thought being a Christian was, was kind of culturally British and also just to do with like being a nice person or something. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to kind of unpick those and separate those. And, and actually growing up... Um, I, I talked about two different cultures that I experienced growing up, the church culture and the family culture, but actually there was a third culture uh, that I identified when I was thinking about it, and that was a very secular British culture. And um, the UK, Europe as a whole, uh, the UK less than countries like France, but um, Europe as a whole is, is generally more secular than the United States. Um, and I looked up some statistics this week from uh, 2011, I think 59% of people in the UK identified as Christian. Um, and I think the number in the US is more like 75. Um, and the number of people that identify as atheist or having no faith in the UK is somewhere around 38%. Um, and so I, I felt growing up as a, ch uh, as a child that even though uh, Christian elements were deeply ingrained into culture, like celebrating Christmas and having you know everyone having those days off universally across the nation, no matter what religion you were, you all got Christmas off. Um, that those kinds of cultural elements, uh, faith elements, were embedded in the culture. In, in practice, growing up, like I was often the only Christian in an environment, like in in my school year or when I went to university. Um, you know, I was one of maybe a couple Christians in my whole dorm, and we just had one small Christian organisation on campus of about 50 people. And um, I assume that was kind of the same everywhere. I guess you, I you always assume your own experience is kind of universal. And then when I, um, I actually lived in Oregon for a year as an exchange student in the early 2000s and was amazed by how Christian everything was, uh, by how many churches there were in the small college town, by how many Christians there were on the floor of my dorm, let alone the whole dorm, and how many different like campus Christian fellowships there were. And so that was a, that was a real surprise, I guess. Um, and... The other thing that has really surprised me comparing uh, UK culture with American culture is the, um, the official separation between church and state here, which we do not have in the UK. Actually, it seems to me that the church and state are much more intertwined here, particularly in politics. And, uh, and so there tends to be a bit of a suspicion of Christians in politics in the UK that you can't trust somebody who, who claims to have a personal faith um, to be able to make uh, political decisions that are unbiased. Um, and so you would, you would never have politicians talking about praying or about going to church. Or when, when, you, when they have, particularly in the recent election, it's caused all sorts of problems for people and somebody resigned uh, because people, he felt that um, people thought that his evangelical faith and his political um, leadership were incompatible. And so to me that seems very different from, <laughs> from the U.S.
Yeah, that definitely is my experience too. Uh, in Australia, I think we're very suspicious. I think we're even more post-Christian than Europe in some ways, very multicultural um, and much more influenced by Asia as well. But I, I think it always struck me as weird. I think it struck me as weird on mon- on Monday when it, it, the head of this country just appealed primarily to faith about something I think is political, and I was just like, I don't understand. Like we're supposed to somehow like say that that like our faith in Jesus is bigger than guns. Like your job to me is to actually like talk about the guns, not talk about Jesus. Anyway, I just thought it was kind of, it's really weird. I think as an outsider to walk into America and realize how religiosity just is all over the place. Jube, your experience culture, church? Um, because we're historical Christians and I, having this discussion, I realized how, um, how much I operate in like a micro-culture. Like I'm part of this big Indian culture, but I'm South Indian, which is so much smaller. And then I'm Christian, which is so much smaller. And I'm Malayali, which is, you know, so it's like these tiny little circles of, you know, how I identify. And because we were historically Christian, um, it's just who we are. So, but as as culture is, you know, embedded in faith and faith and culture, like you could see, like when we when you go to South India and you go to like a Christian's home, um, you can see like a, pi- a picture of like Mary and Jesus, and it's adorned with like rosaries and flowers and things. And if you go to a Hindu's home, because you know we're still primarily Hindu in India and so if you go to a Hindu's home you'll see whatever god they have in their room adorned with flowers and beads so it's is like it a white Jesus too it's a white Jesus of course white Jesus he's my he's my homie um, and so you know it it ends up being like this sort of mesh of um okay, this is how we identify. We're Christian. We're not Hindu. But we have these real big, you know, practices or we have these things that resemble, um, we just Christianize that particular cultural aspect. So that's how it is. Like, so even in our wedding ceremonies, we do this kind of Hindu cultural tradition where we tie this, um, it's called the minna around our, uh, the, the husband uh, ties it around the woman's neck and it's supposed to represent it's seven threads from a sadi, um, the wedding sadi that the, the groom gives to the bride. And it's, you know, tied together with rice, and it's a beautiful strand, and you put this pendant on it, and it's supposed to represent the two parents, the two uh, parents from both sides, and the bride and the groom, and Christ. And so that was a Hindu tradition that we just made Christian, you know? So, it, you know, we made up those things like, oh, okay, it probably was like four strands, but now it's seven strands, you know? Like, or maybe it was seven gods. I have no idea what the history is. But that's a lot of what, what we did as Christian, like the identity of being Christian um, in a culture that's not. So we always had to be. So Marthamites are very conservative, you know, because we didn't, do all the, we didn't do Diwali, we didn't do any of the fun things because we were Christian. <laughs> Christianity, culture without all the fun. <laughs> right, right. So, um, yeah. Uh, is there a particular uh, cultural kind of element of that you grew up with that you're particularly fond of? 
You know, I think Indians as a whole are very hospitable people, and I love that. Like, I was thinking about if you ever come to my house and in the first five minutes I don't offer you something to eat or drink, like, I can never be the Indian auntie I want to be. <laughs> so I just like that. I love, um, I love for people to feel warm in my home, and I love to provide that in any space I'm, I'm at. So... Um, I think that that's just a rich cultural thing. Awesome. How about you, Hannah? Cultural experience that you particularly love? Um, it's hard to think about a cultural experience. Um, there is, I mean, there are a lot of things about my culture that I love. And again, they're kind of things that maybe I didn't recognize until I left. <laughs> so um, I was never particularly patriotic or particularly interested in being English. Um, and, but it's amazing the things that you miss when you end up living somewhere else. Um, w one of the, th the things is the kind of, I guess, the British sense of humor and resiliency. And uh, people still in the UK talk about the blitz spirit, meaning from the Second World War, um, the spirit of Londoners, particularly during the blitz, um, and the keep calm and carry on that's now become like a thing worldwide. But uh, that, that is something that I see in a lot of British folks. Um, and there was something that went viral recently when there were some terrorist attacks in London a couple months ago. Uh, and they had to evacuate pubs. And uh, there was a picture of a guy that took his pint of beer with him uh, to evacuate from the terrorists. And when they asked him, he said, I paid £7 for this pint. I was going to take it with me. Whatever. <laughs> so there's silly things like that. I think culturally, one of the things that I most value about the UK, and again, I didn't fully realise this until I left, was um, a, a history of socialism that is deeply rooted in Christianity. And it's kind of a hard thing to explain to Americans because it seems like over here the word socialist is like a bad word and it's seen as synonymous with communist. Um, whereas in Europe it's not seen that way at all. And um, so in the, in the wake of the Second World War in the late 1940s there was a, uh, a Labour government in the UK which introduced um, the welfare state, the welfare state um, including kind of ideals for affordable housing, um, universal free healthcare for everybody, uh, and um, also uh, benefits like a safety net of welfare benefits for people if they fell on hard times. And in a lot of ways that's been eroded um, over the last however many years it's been since then. But, um, but that is still a core value, I think, to a lot of British people. And some of the folks that were involved in setting that up were atheists, um, but Others were Christians, and there is a real kind of history in England of, of Christian socialism and the Christian left, um, which which I love. Um, there was in the 1990s there was a leader of the Labour Party called John Smith, who was um, expected by many people to become the next Prime Minister. He actually died young, very suddenly, of a heart attack in the 90s, um, and Tony Blair took over from him. But he and some other uh, politicians wrote a book in the 90s, and I should have got the name of it, I'll get it for the second service, uh, but it was all about their socialism and how that was rooted in their Christian faith, and it was very, very explicitly uh, rooted in Christianity, which is quite rare in British politics, so that's something that's, that's important to me and something that um, it's hard to explain how it feels when you live in a, a country where you've always had universal free healthcare and just assume that that's how it is, and then you Amen. come to a place where that's no longer the case. <laughs> Uh, so we, we do have to wrap up. This is going way too fast, unfortunately. 
but what I want, I want to finish with is going down the line and talking about uh, a time when someone interacted with your culture that, that went well or didn't go well. I know you, you have a great story, Dorcas, so I'll let you... I do have a great story. So, I mentioned my first name is Dorcas. Um, my full name is Dorcas Yun Eng. Um, and my name is super, super Christian. Um, so anyway, I, um, I have a Chinese name that my parents gave me when I was born. And it's taken from um, John chapter 1, verse 16. And it says, you know, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received blessings one after another. Um, and my Chinese name is taken from that last part, like grace upon grace. So at one point in college, and I was in a Christian fellowship, I was, I was kind of telling this story to a friend. And um, it was the strangest thing, because it took me such a long time to figure out what he actually meant. Um, so I was telling him about my name, and he said something like, so why don't you use your real name? And I said, what do you, what? Um, it's interesting because over the years, like, a lot of people have asked me if I use a nickname just because of, uh, the unfortunate first name that I have. Um, and so I said, what do you, what do you mean by real name? And he's like, well, you know, you're the parent, your name your parents gave you. And I was like, well, my parents gave me both of my names. And my literal birth certificate, like, that's my official name. Like, do you want to see my, like, passport? Like, I, it was such a strange thing. And... And in that process, I also like, and and I won't repeat it because it's really offensive. But um, he basically tried to say my full name, Dorcas Yun Eng, like in a Chinese accent, as if that was like what my real name was. And I was like, I have two names. My name in English is Dorcas. I have another name in Chinese. Those are both of my names. And he couldn't seem to grasp this idea that like my real name is not Dorcas. And I think, like, it was well-meaning because, like, there are a lot of people who, like, are given a non-English name and then they, like, as they become Americanized, really, they, like, adopt a, an English or American name. And so I think he was, like, trying to encourage me in that way, but it just, like, went in a very, very different direction. And from then on, I'm and I don't... Do I need to say this was a white guy? Um, and and uh, from then on, I just like decided to just avoid these kinds of conversations with him because I was like, I don't think you really get it. Um, but yeah, that's why it's my cultural exchange story. You got to tell that story. Tell us upstairs, Hannah, because it's way too good. <laughs> okay, so um, there, are, I guess there are a few silly things that. Uh, that you realize when um, you move someone new, you realize stereotypes that people have about uh, about your culture that you never knew. Uh, what I was saying upstairs was um, that when I was at college in Oregon, someone asked me, well, someone said to me once, your English is so good. What, what language do you speak in England? And I was like, uh, English? That's why it's called English. <laughs> we invented it. <laughs> but um, when I was thinking about this question this week, that... I mean, there's always going to be silly interactions you have with people and stereotypes that you realize that people have about your culture that you didn't know. But really, I think um, what, what came to mind this week was really how the whole world has had to interact with my culture because it's sort of been forced on people throughout the world through colonialism and the British Empire. Um, and 
it, yeah, that that was a real challenge to me this week to think about that. Um, and I think uh, you know the reason that um, that in America, uh, what's seen as the mainstream culture is essentially a version of Western uh, European culture is because of that colonial history. Um, and one of the things that uh, that I found uh, most challenging in the last few years since I've, I've been in the US is thinking about um, racial justice and thinking about um, colonization. <clears throat> And I have a friend, I only love Austin, who is the executive director of Faith in New York, which is an interfaith uh, social justice um, organization in New York City. And she was speaking last year at a conference called Why Christian, which invites people to tell stories about why they're Christian. And the thing that she said really stuck out for me. Um, she said, I am a Christian because uh, God is not a white man and the white man is not God. And I think that kind of the white Jesus that we talked about that's been imposed on the world by uh, a European white version of Christianity um, is is something that's a challenge to me to think about. I've had so many interactions with my culture. Um, one of my first memories, um, I was in preschool, I was really hungry and it was lunchtime and they passed out the lunches and it was all these kids sitting around the circle and I don't have really a lot of good childhood memories. Um, so the kids, it's all the lunch stories, right? The Asian lunch stories that you probably have seen BuzzFeed do. Um, and so I was like sitting there so hungry and everybody got their little lunch box or a brown paper bag and I had like my plastic bag. I, I remember this. I had my plastic bag and I'm unwrapping my roti with the subji, which is bright yellow and it was my tin foil and everybody had regular bags and I was noticing it. And I was sitting there, I was about to devour it, and someone, some stupid little girl or little boy was like, Ew! And all I see, the memory is like all of the kids standing up and doing this to my face. <laughs> and feeling so embarrassed and being like, oh my gosh. So I just took the thing and I threw it in the trash. And I didn't eat that day. And so, you know, fast forward a few years later, and I was in line, I was like seven years old, and... This woman was in front of us at Sears, and she was treating her child really poorly, like almost hitting them. And I was like telling my mom, like, I can't believe she's doing this in public. Like, this is ridiculous. And we were speaking in Malayalam, and the woman overheard us commenting and looking at her, like sort of, you know, berating her child. And she went up to the cashier and loudly was like, don't you hate these foreigners? Why do they come to our country and take our jobs? And I wish they would just go back and look straight at us. And from there, those kinds of things, like I have countless things like that that have happened to me. Um, and I just have always been like, you know what? I'm going to be a cultural negotiator. I'm going to empower myself and help others to understand my culture. But it's so exhausting. Um, even recently, I'm so tired by it. This guy, I t we were in conversation, this like Brooklynite guy, who's like, you know, so with it. He was uh, talking about everything that he knew. And then we were talking and he's like, I was like, oh yeah, something about India. And I was like, oh, you're Indian. And we talked a little bit about that. And he goes, oh yeah, I just watched the movie Lion. <laughs> in response to me saying that I was Indian. It was so ridiculous to me. I watched Slumdog Millionaire last week. Oh, too. good. Just... just <laughs> 
so that, that it still happens you know and it's I don't know I don't know how to have patience anymore so I just shut it down I was like okay nice to meet you bye <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. So you're probably wondering, like, why are we talking about this this morning? And I think, uh, hopefully you've been reflecting too on your own story. And one of the things we want to do this week, if you're in small groups, we will be rolling out these questions. There's a bunch that we didn't get to, unfortunately. Um, but we will hopefully follow this conversation up online. And like Jonathan said, FCQ will continue. We'll have much more of these panel discussions. What I'm hoping maybe you reflected on is just where you've been at. And I know we've had a lot of conversations over the last few months where I realized all of us are third culture kids in some way here in New York. We all came from somewhere, we went someplace else, and now we kind of stand in this place. And what I'm kind of hoping and praying kind of what Forefront could be as a, as a community is, is not just multicultural, multicolored in the sense that we just look different, we have different things, but we're truly engaged in these conversations. Uh, and so I think one of the things I think about is a lot of fear to ask somebody, you know, where they're from, or actually be curious. But I hope as a church we can actually you know, take that confidence and that courage to actually ask someone this week, maybe have a conversation, maybe kind of start uh, start that and ask the hard questions. We're going to get to hear that, that story and be like, oh, man, I'm part of that whole system. Um, so let's thank these guys for kind of what they've said to us this morning. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to do communion as we always do as a family. Uh, uh, so... It's just simple, a simple symbol of Jesus' love for us in, in the way which represents Jesus' body and the juice represents his blood. So the ashes will come forward. Uh, you can take your time and let's take uh, communion as a family and celebrate that. No matter where we're from, our, our faith in our cultures, that we are invited to this table. This table is enough. This table uh, is laden with the blessings of God for God's people.